This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. The young shining cuckoo is fed by its foster parents on insects and spiders. But the korimako, or bellbird, has a much more interesting diet of nectar. It's been something of a radio personality and has sung on shortwave radio to Australia and the Pacific nations for 30 years. However, the early recordings failed to reflect the versatility of the bellbird, with its wide variety of liquid notes and artistically placed clicks and bell-like sounds. It's not surprising that Maori mythology describes Korimako, the bellbird, as the messenger of Tane, sent to herald the coming of the sun. Community or chaos, we can construct and nurture community or fall into chaos. Over the next hour, Marvin Hubbard hosts conversations toward creating a fairer, more equal society. Community or chaos, made possible by support from the Peace and Disarmament Education Trust. Welcome, friends. As we're still at level four, we're doing a pre-record with James, Professor James Headley. He teaches political studies at Otago University, has an interest in Russian foreign policy and the European Union and nationalism, and has particularly studied the recent history of Russia. Good morning, James. Morning, Marvin. Uh, nice to be here. Good, good to have you. Well, friends, remember that you can podcast this by going to oar.org.nz and then going to Community or Chaos, Podcasting Community or Chaos. Well, James, what led you to become interested in uh, Russia for your academic work? Uh, good question, and I get asked that quite often. Um, I, when I was doing my undergraduate degree in politics and philosophy, um, all the changes were occurring in Eastern Europe and then the Soviet Union. So uh, I remember, in fact, some fellow students going off to Berlin over the weekend because we were in Oxford, and uh, they went off to Berlin over the weekend as the wall came down. And I took in my finals there, probably it would have been the last time it was taught as a paper, the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, uh, which was in 1991. And of course, then the Soviet Union ceased to exist and Central Europe, and Eastern Europe started to call itself Central Europe. Um, so it had all been happening then. I then took a few years out, um, just enjoying myself teaching English in Greece. And when I went back into academia a few years later, I was very interested to see how things had changed and were changing because it was a very dramatic time uh, in Eastern Europe and the Soviet Unions, or the former Soviet Union, of course, by then. So that's how I got into it. It was a very interesting time under Gorbachev, really, because people had different expectations. I knew a, a Russian historian um, who believed that Russia could turn into a, a modern Sweden. That was a bit optimistic, it turned out. <laughs> yes, and probably from some Russian perspectives, that would be a, a real kind of downgrade. And I think we can sort of see that with Putin. He wants to be more than a Sweden, but it's questionable whether he's even achieved a Sweden economically. Well, but, uh, but you're right. Um, English Revolution. 
Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in, um, Gorbachev himself, um, you know, believed that the Soviet Union could change dramatically but still maybe kind of preserve itself as the Soviet Union and preserve maybe some core cool features of the communist system. And I think he was, he, he was proven wrong in both uh, aspects because of the rising nationalism and because once it democratised, it was quite clear that people had had enough of the communist system. Could you talk about Russia's transformation from the fall of the Soviet Union and Secretary of Gorbachev through to Boris Johnson? Yeah, I mean, um, again, very dramatic events. We're now, um, we've basically just had the 30th anniversary, so it, it sort of seems like history now, but the repercussions are still playing out in, in Russia and the former Soviet Union. But we've just had the 30th anniversary of the failed coup in August 1991, which um, was led by communist hardliners, but particularly what they were trying to do was uh, preserve central control, preserve the kind of security forces and military role in the Soviet Union, uh, but also to hold the Soviet Union together as a kind of strong central state, centralized state. So they were defeated, and then uh, the republics very rapidly uh, declared independence. And later on in December 1991, the leaders of the Three big uh, Slavic republics of uh, Belarus, Ukraine, and uh, Russia, of course, with Yeltsin, met and decided to fully disband the Soviet Union. So by the end of 1991, there was no Soviet Union. There were 15 independent republics, and there was no Gorbachev because he was the president of the Soviet Union and no longer had a state to be president of. So some of this was actually kind of power politics in a way. It was kind of Yeltsin getting rid of Gorbachev. But also, um, Yeltsin believed that Russia could transform itself much more quickly, uh, freed of some of the kind of burdensome uh, republics, some of the poorer republics. And he believed that also Russia would be transitioned very quickly into a, a, a liberal, uh, democratic, capitalist state. Uh, and one of the kind of key decisions they did was to go for a very rapid transition uh, what, they, what was known as shock therapy. Tried um, that in Chile under Friedman. Yeah, I mean, it was sort of a, with Western advisors who kind of pushed for this. The politics of it is interesting. I remember going to a talk by a former uh, advisor of Gorbachev, and uh, he said that this was in many ways, it was almost a rerun of the Russian Revolution in reverse, that the incoming uh, uh, elite with Gaidar leading the um, economic side believed that they had a very small window of opportunity to totally transform things. And they also realized that they didn't really have democratic legitimacy to do this very rapid transition. So they kind of pushed it through almost undemocratically uh, to create a fait complete. That's exactly uh, what happened in Chile. Only yeah. Americans created a coup d'etat to make it happen in Chile. That's right. And of course, they were posing as Democrats, but there's questions around that because uh, the elections have been under the previous regime. Um, there was the famous uh, or infamous events of uh, 1993 when uh, basically the Russian parliament was standing up to Yeltsin and his uh, shock therapists and resisting the policies and uh, also kind of disputing over the constitution and who was going to have the power in the constitution. And ultimately, Yeltsin ordered the shelling 
bombardment of the uh, parliamentary building. And through this kind of forced into submission, the parliament held elections under the new constitution, but that constitution was brought in in a referendum through those elections. So it was very kind of dodgy in uh, process terms. And perhaps perhaps it was the way forward, but uh, it does kind of, it, it raised doubts right from the beginning about the democratic legitimacy of, of the process. And that's one side of it. And then the other side, of course, is the way that it um, had such a profound impact on people's lives uh, and on the economy as a whole. So going from a relatively egalitarian society, but in which there were shortages of goods and lack of freedoms, to one in which there was incredible inequality with uh, vast riches stolen really by the oligarchs and then uh, huge numbers of people in destitution and the sort of collapsed middle classes whose savings have been wiped out by hyperinflation. So if you were rich, you were quite free, but if you weren't rich, it was a different story. Yeah, and I think the term oligarch pushes it further than that. It's not just being free, but you could also control politics in some way. Uh, which people like Berezovsky did in, in using their media outlets and um, uh, and also kind of getting behind Yeltsin in, in the 1996 presidential election. The, um, this is a probably a not an obvious question and probably meaningless, but if the military hadn't tried to a coup against Gorbachev, would the same results probably happen? They didn't. Did that change anything or just make it happen faster? Yeah, I mean, it did change it, definitely. Um, the process, I think the economic changes would probably have occurred and there would have been struggles within the wider Soviet Union with the other republics about how far that would go and how rapidly. And in fact, I might have put a bit of a break on this kind of rapid transition that the uh, Russia did on its own. Well, um, Take if they wanted to keep any part of the system. Sorry, say that again. So the military actually made a bad mistake if they wanted to keep any part of the system. Well, it certainly backfired. The defeat of it. So what happened was that after after the coup was defeated, the um, the other republics like Ukraine very quickly thought, well, if we remain part of this Soviet Union, or it was. The context was that they were renegotiating the Union Treaty. So the old constitution and union uh, was, of course, under the communist system. Um, so they were renegotiating that to create what was going to be a, a union of sovereign states, which um, ultimately each state was sovereign, but would be kind of part of this wider free market, single market and so on. The interesting irony is that um, at exactly the same time that the leaders of the free Republics, Yeltsin and, and the ones from Ukraine and Belarus were meeting. Um, the leaders of the uh, European communities, as they were then, were meeting uh, to decide to create what then became the European Union. So they were kind of moving in that direction. I mean, it was kind of there already, but they agreed the Maastricht Treaty, which formally created it as a European Union, which is a union of sovereign states. And that was really what. Um, was supposed to be happening in the Soviet Union in the other sort of direction. Um, but the coup basically put an end to that. It was supposed to stop this happening and keep a more centralised um, union. And when uh, uh, reformers in each of the republics, and nationalists as well, 
saw what was happening, saw the dangers. They believed that their best bet was to get out of it. And then later on, um, w- one of the key decisions uh, that the new reformers in Russia made was to um, basically separate the currency out. So again, going the opposite direction of the European Union, which was moving towards the euro at that time, um, because they believed that um, really only with Russia having control of its currency could they do the reforms they wanted to do. And again, also, they didn't want to be propping up uh, other uh, economies and subject to their economic decisions. So there was a sort of nationalist sovereignty movement from Russia itself. Um, And had the coup not happened, some of those tensions, I think, would have played out politically within the new union about whether to keep a common currency and what kind of policies around that. Similar things that we later see in the European Union. Um, but I don't think it would have been quite um, so dramatic in terms of the, um, of course, the breakup of the state, which was very sudden and led to um, potential conflicts, or in fact, conflicts that have descended to the present, um, including Nagorno-Karabakh, which kicked off last year between uh, Azerbaijan and Armenia, um, South Ossetia and Abkhazia in, in uh, Georgia, and of course, Transnistria in Moldova. So these were all sort of repercussions of the breakup of the Soviet Union. Had it remained as some sort of state, uh, then uh, that wouldn't uh, maybe have been so so violent. Any American liberals predicted a golden era of free market capitalism and liberal democracy in the end of history. Mm. What's your, what was your feeling when you first heard those remarks? Um, well, as a student of nationalism, um, I was skeptical. <laughs> and and uh, uh, I always kind of comment the way that um, Fukuyama's um, The End of History article, um, which I, first, I think first came out in 1989. But this, uh, this attitude really affected not only Russia, but many people's attitude toward the market and capitalism. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, you know, when he first wrote it, he kind of had a question mark. And when his book came out, he got rid of the question mark. He was sure about it. Um, but his idea was basically a reverse of um, the Marxist idea. And in fact, part of the Marxist-Leninist ideology that ultimately conflict would disappear because of the um, global creation of uh, communism. So this was the reverse of that, the conflict uh, understood as a conflict between ideologies uh, would disappear. Um, And of course, an optimism that, and it coincides, of course, with the shift towards much more neoliberal approaches within Western uh, states as well. So it, it wasn't just a kind of Keynesian thing, it was now that kind of transition to a much more kind of radical free market approach and, the, and their confidence that they had all the answers. Now, of course, what we saw with Russia was some of the problems of that, and particularly with a rapid transition towards it. We also see a very different kind of model of development, a kind of state capitalist development with China and without the kind of political changes. And of course, later, we also see the global financial crisis and the economic re- repercussions. So I think we're regardless of the Russia example, we're sort of living in uh, an era of kind of scepticism about that um, confidence in the ability of markets to kind of always bring prosperity. How did this these changes affect 
ordinary non-political Russians during the Yeltsin era and beyond? I mean, it was horrendously hard for so many people. A number of people emigrated. A number of people um, just did all they could to get by. I remember the first time I went to Russia in uh, 98, and by then it was beginning to recover a bit. And then it was, that was just before there was then a big um, currency crisis or the exchange rate crisis. Um, and they devalued the ruble. But just before that, it was sort of beginning to recover a bit. But I remember kind of local markets where elderly women were coming in from the villages and, and literally had like one fish, dried fish to sell. And there were drunk young men everywhere on the underpasses in the metro and so on. So huge poverty and unemployment. And that was probably in the better areas. Um, breakdown of the infrastructure in, in kind of places outside Moscow and St. Petersburg. And people just struggling to survive. Um, I mean, academics um, might have had a stable job, for example, but they weren't really being paid. And if they were paid, it wasn't worth much. So often they were doing jobs on the side, like being a taxi driver or working in a shop if they could. Um, and lots of, as I said, lots of people left. And one of the other things, and this feeds into kind of Putin's policies later on, is um, declining life expectancies, particularly for, for men and, and partly because of alcohol, um, and a declining birth rate. So there was also then that kind of worry about, you know, Russian, this kind of cycle of um, population decline as well. At the point, uh, just before Yeltsin, under Gorbachev, they had free health care. They may not have been to the standard of Great Britain, but they did have free health care and they had free education. Mm. Did that continue? Um, not really, and people had to kind of bribe as well. So even if it was there theoretically, you kind of had to pay, try and pay you pay your way, and the, the, the equipment wasn't there, the, the, the services weren't there. Uh, Education-wise, yes, and I think um, in many ways the education system did manage to continue in quite a strong way. Um, but... Uh, uh, in very difficult circumstances for the people working in it, <laughs> for, for the teachers or uh, the academics in, in universities. Um, but the health system, I think, was hit particularly bad because of the um, health aspects of the economic crisis and then the, the lack of state support. Um, where did Putin come from? And how did he he get power. Okay, so he, he, I mean, his background, of course, was uh, KGB, as we all know, um, based, uh, he was posted in East Germany in the, in the late period, uh, as things were changing. Um, but his route into politics, first of all, he was working in the administration in the, in what became St. Petersburg after Leningrad, the St. Petersburg uh, mayor's office under Sobchak. And so he was the mayor and he knew he was um, Putin's former law professor, I think. And he was then plucked from that, but he, he was a background person. He wasn't really known politically. Uh, Yeltsin plucked him from that, made him briefly um, secretary of the Security Council within the Russian government, um, briefly uh, head of the FSB, successor to the KGB. But this key the key moment of his rise to power was that Yeltsin made him prime minister. So under the semi-presidential system that 
they had and still have to a certain degree in Russia. The president's elected and then the president appoints the prime minister who then gets kind of uh, confirmed by the, the Duma, the parliament. And Yeltsin was really kind of trying out different prime ministers um, to see who might succeed him as president as he came to the end of his second term. And Primakov, uh, who had a very strong uh, role in foreign policy previously, was perhaps seen as too challenging to Yeltsin. He was the prime minister. So Yeltsin appointed somebody else who was kind of low profile and then ultimately appointed Putin at around the time that the that the second Chechen war began. And this was an opportunity for Putin to kind of demonstrate his kind of strongman credentials. There were uh, bombings of apartments, apartment buildings in Russia, which there are reports about, there, there are doubts about whether this was genuine or not, whether it was che Chechen terrorists or whether it was organized by security services as a kind of false flag operation. Um, regardless, um, that and the incursion of Chechen fighters into neighboring parts of Russia gave the pretext for Russia to try and retake control of Chechnya, which formerly was part of Russia, but had tried to break away. And this kind of allowed Putin as the prime minister to kind of show his strongman status and establish himself as, as a political leader in his own right. And then when Yeltsin uh, resigned, then uh, Putin was his sort of natural successor by that stage. All right. I think we might have a, a piece of music now. Okay, sounds good. Here they come marching past the houses, shiny boots and khaki blouses, stiff as the creases in their trousers, standing tall and straight and strong. And they all keep in step together, glint of steel and flash of leather, braving every kind of weather as they boldly march along. You can dismiss it as a ploy for the enlistment of the boys who'll be impressed to see the toys and play the games that can be played. And you may well prefer abstention, but I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade. Look at your sons before they're older, they'll be stronger, they'll be bolder, just the thing to make a soldier and we'll turn them into men. And they'll be taught to follow orders, keep the peace and guard the borders to protect us from marauders and defend us to the end. But the position they'll be filling is to be able and be willing to be killed or do the killing when there's a price that must be paid. And you may well prefer abstention, but I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade. In the pursuit of a community of decency and unity and equal opportunity, we stand prepared to fight. And if there's a threat to our position from an unruly opposition, then with guns and ammunition, we'll repel with all our might. And we'll dehumanize and hate them, sending the troops to decimate them as in the name of all the nation. All it stands for is betrayed. 
had you came well Prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade For merely the whim or intuition Of an elected politician Makes a melee with no conditions Once the monster quits the cage It's a machine that gives no quarter Dealing death and sowing slaughter Raping mothers, wives and daughters In an all-consuming rage And we may well believe we need it And we'll pay to arm and feed it But can you tell me who will lead it When the decisions must be made And you may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade Some will wonder what's to fear And say that there's no danger here But there has never been a year When soldiers haven't been at war And all the evil executions And the bloody revolutions And the ultimate solutions too Have all been seen before And there is always someone scheming And sometimes at night when dreaming In the distance I hear screaming And in my heart I feel afraid And you may well prefer abstention But I feel compelled to mention You do well to pay attention When the boys are on parade They come marching past the houses Shiny boots and khaki blouses Stiff as the creases in their trousers Standing tall and straight and strong And is it any cause for pride That now the women march beside them Will there be wiser gods to guide them In discerning right from wrong For every step is a reminder Of the threat that lies behind If we forget the ties that bind us When the authentic game is played Abstention, but I feel compelled to mention you do well to pay attention when the boys are on parade. And as the procession passes by, consider the sight before your eyes, cause it'll be you they kill and die for if they are called to the crusade. Or you may love them and adore them, you may hate them and abhor them, but for Christ's sake, don't ignore them when the boys are on parade. song was from Marcus Turner, When the Boys Are on Parade. Pay attention. <laughs> I think it sort of fits um, the world at the yeah. present time. Why was Putin, in the early part of his presidency, genuinely popular in Russia, or was he? I, I think he was. Um, one of the things that I never quite understood really was the way that increasingly he began to kind of manipulate elections, drive out opposition parties, make it difficult for them when he was so popular anyway. In a sense, he didn't need to do that. Um, why? Partly because he was the anti-Yeltsin. Yeltsin was seen as the person who kind of basically contributed to the breakup of the Soviet Union, done these policies that had caused so much uh, suffering, really had led a disastrous war in Chechnya uh, and was in some ways an embarrassment, especially on the international stage. There were famous events where he was drunk uh, at, at, at big, big events. Like There was this um, when the Russian troops, 
who succeeded the Red Army, basically, uh, left Berlin for the last time in August 1994. And uh, in many ways, this was not just the end of the Cold War, it's the end of the Second World War. And Yeltsin was drunk and started conducting the um, the orchestra. So um, he was seen as um, a person who had had his time, who had, who had also brought a lot of havoc as well as perhaps having brought freedom. And Putin, in many ways, he was younger, he was sober, he seemed energetic, he seemed organized. And he seemed somebody who might kind of bring order again to, to Russia. And as I said, he also kind of had that strongman image because of the much more successful, although very kind of brutal suppression of, uh, of Chechen uh, independence. And um, he also benefited, I mentioned in passing, the, um, the, the financial crash basically in Russia in 1998. The devaluation that happened then, the currency devaluation, actually helped the Russian economy because they were able to export much more. And that coincided also with a rise in oil and gas prices. So in some ways, Putin benefited from this. Um, but also he kind of took measures that seemed to be clamping down on the oligarchs, keeping them out of politics, but also um, challenging their um, independent um control of uh, these big assets that used to be part of the Soviet assets, of course. So he was seen as somebody who was kind of restoring order, bringing um, uh, prosperity back, or at least some sort of uh, economic recovery back and quite kind of rapid growth in the initial period. And to start with internationally, he, he posed as a Democrat and as a kind of somebody who had worked with the West. He, um, you know, he supported... He actually offered support with it. We're now seeing 20 years on um, some of the repercussions, but he offered um, some support for the Afghanistan um, uh, intervention by the US. And he kind of saw Russia as having a kind of reset after the um, disputes over Kosovo and so on. So they saw him as somebody who would kind of restore Russia as, a, as an important power in the world, uh, but perhaps one that would um, be respected. Now, with the oligarchs part of the problem, I mean, because many of, some of the opposition against Putin, some of the leaders, were from the oligarchy and could hardly claim democratic credentials. In no, um, the, the standard interpretation of what happened was that Putin basically did a deal with them, and he said, "If you stay out of politics, you can keep your your wealth." And so it was the ones who kind of challenged him on that who he then kind of acted against, like Khodorkovsky. Um, now, how you interpret that in terms of democracy is, is perhaps, you know, people will have different views about that. Uh, in some ways, as I said, they actually had, um, had – it wasn't just – it was partly kind of um, – manipulating elections by media coverage, um, giving money to Yeltsin for his campaigns and, and so on. But they were actually actively involved, like Berezovsky was actually kind of in the government and so on. So wealth had been a kind of way into government. So again, this was something that seemed quite popular. And um, in, in some ways, I think you're right. It can be seen as kind of clamping down on undemocratic practices. I think one of the criticisms is that Putin himself and his circle kind of themselves 
uh, got rich that they put their cronies in to run industries that were sort of private, um, nationalized again, but were kind of under their control. Um, but also that he wasn't, um, um, he wasn't consistent in this approach. So somebody who was kind of on side with him, like Abramovich, would, would kind of get away and be allowed to have his super yachts and own Chelsea and so on, and others wouldn't. Isn't there a danger when you privatize public government, public-owned systems, that the beneficiaries um, get unfair wealth advantages of wealth, even if they don't get political power? Yeah. I mean, I think, I think this is absolutely genuine um, criticism of what was done wrong. In the early 1990s, it's probably not just in Russia this has happened. Yeah, no, that, no, that's right. Um, I mean, I remember growing up in the UK with Thatcherism and the kind of um, you know all these share sell-offs and things. And I suppose at least there was some sort of attempt to kind of spread it around. Some in the- Russia, there were kind of was there was were sort of everybody got a kind of coupon, mm-hmm. but it was um, people who had access to resources or were in the right kind of place could manipulate that. Later on, actually, you got this shares for um, shares for vote scandal, where basically um, oligarchs gave money to Yeltsin for his um, for his election campaign, and then they got shares in response to this. So, I mean, it was definitely done in a particularly bad way. Um, but uh, but I agree that, that that is even if you don't get this political corruption. For instance, many some of the CEOs of uh, what are now private concerns, mm. uh, like telecom and so on, were once bureaucrats working for the government, who in some cases helped negotiate the sale of uh, these uh, public, um, mm. uh, yeah, uh, these public utilities were actually owned by the citizens of the country. Yeah, that's right, and uh, I think it it was a significant mark of the neoliberal ideology, which perhaps we're questioning a bit now, or that you know privatization even of big state assets such as railways or um, pipelines or whatever um, is the only way to go. And I I always saw that as uh, potentially problematic and undemocratic, and also having um, problems for egalitarianism. What well, was um... Putin enriched himself, didn't he, as well, and some of his followers. It wasn't just the so-called oligarchs, but Putin himself was became an oligarch in a certain sense. Yeah, and I think that's where Navalny, you know, the opposition leader, uh, whose who's kind of main um, weapon has been uh, revealing corruption, that's where a lot of his kind of work has taken place, showing... Um, the, the vast resources that uh, Putin or his circle have and their kind of huge duchess and, and so on. Um, it's hard to get down to the actual details of that. I, I've never seen Putin in quite the same way as some leaders who really do just kind of use their power to, for money for its own sake. Um, but certainly, and probably got worse as time has gone on, he's certainly... Um, no, He's always been a Russian nationalist, hasn't he? He has, but of a particular kind. I mean, I think it's very much that idea of Russia being strong in the world, being a great power, being 
respected and being kind of a strong sovereign state internally. Now, what that means in terms of nationalism is not, for example, allowing places like Chechnya to break away. Um, it means um, showing that Russia has to be respected and that if it's being pushed aside, it will act on its own. Um, now, the degree to which he's been a kind of ethnic Russian nationalist um, is a bit more questionable. So internally, he still has a kind of narrative of Russia being a multi-ethnic, multi-religious state, which, of course, it is. Um, nevertheless, he's a bit like Stalin. He sort of sees the, the great Russia, the, the ethnic Russians, as the kind of lead ethnic group within the state. And in eastern Ukraine, and of course with Crimea, uh, the, the actions there have been partly about supporting uh, ethnic Russians living outside Russia after the breakup of the Soviet Union. So in, he's nationalist in different kind of ways. In some ways, he's not as bad as potential other nationalists who might have come to power, like Zhirinovsky, who was uh, uh, sort of seen as the big threat for some of the time in the 1990s as a kind of fascist leader. Putin's not quite like that. Um, but in some ways, he's become more nationalist in a kind of ideological sense as time's gone on. Um, he has this idea of kind of conservative traditional values, and this is what Russia is about, and, and has kind of got on side with the Orthodox Church around that. And we can see that in the repression of LGBT rights, for example. Is um, corruption still a major problem in Russia? Yeah, it's probably got worse again. I mean, I think I think the early Putin periods, you know, there was a kind of corruption czar and there were real attempts to kind of tackle it in, in many ways. Um, there's always the, the problem of Russia of its sheer size. So you get kind of local leaders um, being corrupt in various ways or local um, business people. Um, there's the sheer corruption of somebody being in power for that long and what that kind of means that science can be a um a question we could talk about some other time because i suspect huge nations are huge on population wise and ge the geographic have their have their problems yeah and uh, i mean certainly in terms of corruption um that was the case in the 1990s, and I'm sure it, it, it's gone on and recurred now that it's just the, the um, a lot of things are done at the local level, and uh, a lot of the people at the local level are able to be corrupt. Um, what is life like of, for Russian uh, people? Sorry? Yeah. What's, sorry? Life, what's life like for Russian people now? Yeah, I mean, that's what I was about to mention, actually, that um, in some ways that kind of squalor of life, at least in Moscow and St. Petersburg, that you saw in the 1990s has changed. They're actually, um, the sort of idea that Putin almost um, did a kind of trade-off with the middle classes, particularly those who kind of went out and protested in um, 2012 with the um, kind of um, manipulation of the election, um, a kind of trade-off. So he crushed them politically, but he made life quite nice for the middle classes in Moscow and St. Petersburg. A lot of um, kind of rebuilding work has gone on, nice kind of cafes, restaurants, um, uh, pedestrianised streets, all these kind of markers of a kind of nice middle-class life. And, and in some ways it's like that for a number of people. But um, 
the Russian economy is very reliant still on oil, oil and gas. It was hit by sanctions. It's been hit by COVID, of course. And there still remains a large <coughs> amount of inequality and um, lack of security. And I think we always need to remember in Russia as well that life outside the big cities, and particularly Moscow and St. Petersburg, uh, can be very, very difficult um, with declining infrastructure and, and petty corruption, lack of jobs and so on. That sounds all too familiar. <laughs> it is. I mean, I remember being at a conference a few years ago and somebody who was pretty a Russian, but pretty critical of uh, Putin and, and Russia. And somebody said, well, look at the disaster of the Russian economy and look at, you know, where people, how are people going to get jobs and things? And and her reply was, yes, that's true. But isn't that true for, <laughs> for all sorts of countries, including richer Western countries at the moment? Not just with COVID, I mean, before that, with the financial crisis and just the big question about where are the jobs and what kind of jobs are they going to be in, well, a, in a, you know, in an automated economy and where China is producing everything and so on. Well, one section of the working class in the Midwestern United States is actually declining. Uh, the population size. Yeah. Yeah, and of course we saw that with Trump's right. Yeah. What's the um, what's happening in the rest of Eastern Europe? I mean, what used to be Eastern Europe? Well, yeah, but, as I said right at the start, what used to be Eastern Europe now sort of known as Central Europe, which was a kind of political thing. And part of that political thing was to say we want to join the European Union. So we're out of the Soviet control now with Russia. We've always been controlled by Russia. Our security out of that is to join NATO, but also to join the European Union. So a number of countries, of course, did that. Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, Slovakia, etc. cetera, um, especially with the big enlargement in 2004. So one of the interesting things now is that, particularly with Poland and Hungary, but not just there, Slovakia too, Slovenia at the moment, actually, um, a kind of right-wing nationalism, populism emerging, um, which I think is partly connected to that EU membership. Um, there was a sort of sense of we need to become EU members, we'll do everything it takes, but perhaps something's slightly humiliating about that. And now a sort of reassertion saying we're, you know, we're fairly strong economically, we weren't hit so badly by the um, Eurozone crisis as countries like Greece and Italy. Um, in fact, we kind of helped them out in some ways. We're doing well economically, and we don't necessarily like the Western Europeans telling us what to do. And some of that's kind of come out with values again over um, questions about democracy, independent um, judiciary in, in Poland, uh, but also again around sort of the idea of conservative values and Christian values. So there's an interesting sort of re-emergence of a kind of assertive um, conservative nationalism from countries which previously were sort of the ones who just wanted to show that they were learning from uh, the West. And then, of course, um, they're the EU countries. Then you've got the kind of what I call the new Eastern Europe, which are the countries in between which are not members of the EU, um, but to various degrees are in or trying to get out of the Russian orbit. 
And there you're looking at countries like Ukraine, Moldova, and Belarus. And Belarus, of course, um, and uh, Lukashenko keeping a very hard line authoritarian state. I wonder about when I think of the EU, EU, and sometimes when I think about American politics, that the the intellectual left is sometimes comes across as slightly arrogant. That we sometimes people feel like they're not their views aren't totally respected. Yeah, I mean, I think that's partly um, what the you know what we see everywhere with populism and Trump in the US or with Brexit, the sort of same things that people were thinking and feeling that they kind of weren't able to express. Um, I think in the European context, particularly in the EU, it's, it's an interesting feature. And, and in fact, it also related to Russia. I actually wrote a piece on this. The sort of idea that within the EU, there's certain states who kind of set the values and the norms and that others are always expected to follow. And then vis-a-vis Russia, that it's always the EU that sets these values and norms and then Russia and other countries are expected to follow. So a kind of, it's not necessarily the left there, but a kind of liberal confidence that we know best, um, which Putin stood up against. And I'm not saying he was necessarily right to do so, and I don't agree with his values. But it's partly that idea of sort of sovereignty and that it's our they said this idea of sovereign democracy he had that, that is sort of up to us as a state to decide what kind of democracy, what kind of political system, what kind of values we're going to have. And that, that's what um, uh, sovereignty means. And that's what self-determination and democracy means. And I think you've got a kind of almost repetition of that within the European Union itself. I was, I, you know, I considered myself in a way part of the left. I wouldn't consider myself intellectual. But I, I worry about the fact that sometimes I think the work, what used to be called the working class doesn't have a role. Well, this is where the, even the idea of the left becomes so problematic now. If we're kind of talking about kind of socialist economic approaches as a, and a kind of class-based approach maybe and then the more sort of liberal identity type politics and what what you're seeing in in Europe uh, including in the UK but in other countries too is is a real challenge for labor parties where they were kind of built on the working class and the working class kind of turning against that sort of liberal values in some way and of course also the neoliberalism that those kind of more moderate uh, labor parties, uh, adopted. We've not really seen that so much in New Zealand yet, but um, certainly seeing it um, big kind of challenge um, in in Greece. Oh, it, it's become known as pacification. Um, PASOK being the um, more radical left wing party that replaced. Um, sorry, um, Syriza, the more radical left wing party replacing the more moderate um, socialist party of uh, PASOK in Greece, and. Similar sort of things, they're kind of trying to hold together an alliance, which we can see, especially in the UK, is kind of broken down. Um, and even kind of questions about what left is. Now, if we go back to Eastern Europe, one of the things that I, has, strikes me is how weak 
that kind of economic left has remained even, you could sort of understand it as a kind of reaction against the communist system and so on in the 1990s. And the same with Russia, that kind of very weak um, socialist, you know, based on the idea of a more egalitarian society. But it's just not really taken off as an ideology at all, even though you would have thought it was in the interest of many people. What is the future of democracy if we, if, can we, can democracy work if uh, 30 or 40 percent of the public doesn't have a, a stake in it? In the long run. Yeah. I mean, depending on how you define it, the kind of populist movement at least has thrown open the necessity to debate about what democracy means and how people can be involved. And that includes in terms of economic policy, there was the neoliberal consensus and the kind of sense that whoever came in, it didn't really make any difference. Now, that doesn't seem very democratic. So populism has sort of thrown that open. And so there needs to be a debate. Um, the other thing that raises potential, of course, is, um, is the internet, new communications and so on. The idea that people can be involved and can express their views much more. And there's a, I suppose, was an initial optimism around that, that people can, can that it it can almost recreate the old Greek agora that people can gather and debate and have a direct input into policy. And you're seeing that a bit with kind of experiments with um, citizens' juries and so on. But, of course, we also see the downside of uh, the internet and social media and the, um, the way uh, it feeds false information or um, echo chambers and all of these other problems. So potentially... Um, technology might provide a kind of boost again to democracy. Um, but in many ways, I think people, younger generations often, we've had kind of public panels where we discuss this and uh, we've had kind of student representatives and they often see politics in, in a different kind of way as left about kind of parliaments and elections and governments and more about their kind of activism, their choice about um, uh, what they eat, for example, um, and that this can change the world. I think I think that's a strong movement, but I still believe that governments matter. Well, how can you deal with, for instance, climate change on that kind of basis? That's right. I mean, that, that may be one contributing factor is everybody individually doing things, but it needs government action and government coordination across the world. I mean, it's no surprise to me that the oil companies push individual action on greenhouse gases above government mm. action. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. It's to me that focusing on individual really privileges wealth and privilege. Mm. And then again, also whether kind of taking a market approach, say, to with, say, emissions trading schemes, whether that's just kind of playing into the system rather than more radically challenging it, which might be necessary. It's interesting how conservative the social democratic parties have been. For instance, the Democrats in America, which is one of the most conservative social democratic parties, mm. call them that, would rather have had, appeared to have rather had Trump than Clinton, uh, than Bernie Sanders, the leader. <laughs> Yeah. And they regret that now. 
Yeah. That seemed to be the choice. For some of the more moderate, yeah, some of the more centrist um, Democrats, maybe. Um, Yes, and that's a big kind of shock with the global financial crisis at the time. We kind of saw, yes, this demonstrates that you need to move to the left and some sort of um, more radical policies, but that seemed to get squeezed out again. Um, Young people. And the the response to COVID, I mean, in Europe, you've got this talk of a green deal. And even in response to the financial crisis, of course, there were um, some of the policies were ones that totally went against the kind of previous neoliberal um, uh, ideas about kind of non-state intervention and, you know, not um, kind of boosting demand and so on. So there was a shift back to well, some sort of Keynesianism and you're getting that a bit again with COVID. And, and in fact, the sheer kind of the fact that we're sitting here in lockdown shows what we were saying before, the governments still matter, but also show the control that governments um, do have. Um, and that needs to be kind of taken on board understood democratically, but also perhaps used a bit more benign. If you have a government that's trusted, they can do quite a bit. I mean, I think if we had a leader in New Zealand, which people didn't trust, a lockdown wouldn't have worked. No, that's right. And that's been a huge difference (laughs) for us. (laughs) Um, I mean, I think there is a kind of wider trust in government anyway, regardless of this particular prime minister at the moment uh, in New Zealand um, than than elsewhere. Um, But even at the individual level, you know, it's been a like, look at Brazil and Bolsonaro, and then, you know, the divisions that have been provoked there um, through through both his decisions and the sense uh, um, among many people that he's um, just been totally irresponsible with COVID. Um, shows that we are in quite a different environment. It seems to me that maybe COVID-19 and climate change provide a political fault line again. Yes, and what, as I said, what's been interesting politically, to some extent in, in the United States as well, but certainly in, in the European Union, um, there was actually a kind of political battle around that last year, and we'll still sort of see what the long-term consequences have, will be. But the Commission basically kind of fought the battle to say that any kind of recovery from COVID still has to kind of mainstream environmental concern. So they talked about it being a green recovery, about kind of that we're not going to kind of cut money that's going into environmental programs or um, new energy approaches and so on. Um, in order to kind of boost the economy and so on. So it's been framed quite cleverly as this European Green Deal, which was there already, but COVID recovery been thrown into that. However, there's always the, um, there's always trade-offs. So, you know, countries like Greece are just keen to get tourism going again, and that means people flying there. Yeah. Um, Looks fun. Are you optimistic about the German elections and that they'll? I think um, that it's it's a bit of a slow burner. <laughs> the 
Social Democrat leader has sort of made a bit of a recovery recently, but he's not a particularly kind of high-profile character. Um, so it's not really kind of taken off as a kind of major thing, but I think it's I think it's very interesting. It's an interesting moment. The Merkel era has been so long, and it does kind of pre present a possibility for some sort of debate in Germany, which hasn't been there, and then that often also has implications for the European Union, um, what Germany's role will be, where it will kind of position itself in terms of arguments about, say, shared debt and the COVID recovery. And often um, what matters is the kind of relationship with France and particularly the French president and how uh, a new leader in Germany will kind of respond and work with Macron which Merkel actually worked fairly well with him, particularly over the, these kind of arguments over the COVID recovery. Um, but it remains to be seen who, uh, who will succeed Merkel and what that will mean in terms of that. Also, because of their electoral system, which is very close to ours, um, the Social Democrats are saying that they don't want to go into a grand coalition again, which tends to be the default position when you have a, hung parliament has usually happened. Um, so you've got the potential for a more kind of radical leftish one, although there's often big divisions on the left. Um, but you've also got the dangers of, of more sort of rightish and, and far-right parties and also the Christian Democrats, Democrats moving to the right in order to get those kind of votes. So you're getting a potential polarisation. Okay, I think we... Um... Thanks a lot for coming on. I think we had a good discussion, and we'll have to have another one maybe after the German election. Thanks, Marvin. Yes, yeah, so the German, and as I was going to say, actually, also the French one uh, the following year. You know, things could change quite rapidly in that context. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Marvin. Great, great to talk. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.